This is a Federal News Network podcast. Remember the signs at a fast food chain's locations, billions and billions served? The same could be said of the federal disaster spending for pandemic, millions and millions of awards, billions and billions of dollars. The Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, made up of inspectors general, recently launched a group of dashboards to help people see which agencies got how much money and where it went. Justice Department IG and PRAC Chairman Michael Horowitz joins me now. Mr. Horowitz, good to have you back. It's terrific to be here, Tom. Thanks for having me. And before we get to those dashboards, there's an even newer gambit that you have launched in the last couple of weeks, and that is the Pandemic Analytic Center of Excellence. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah. So, you know, we learned pretty quickly, Tom, that when you are overseeing $5 trillion in pandemic relief spending, which is what our mandate is, um, you can't do that with people, no matter how many people you get. And so we needed to harness the data that was available that we could get. The, one of the challenges, by the way, has been the federal government's lack of good data in so many different ways. But we've been able to build an analytics platform, get what data we can, and we now have over 150 million codes, lines of data um, that we're using to look for anomalies, to look for the fraud. We're looking for, you know, for example, the use of social security numbers for individuals who, based on the numbers, are likely under age 12 or over age 80 or are deceased. And so we're looking for anomalies like that. We're finding multiple uses of the same telephone number, the same address across agencies, things the federal government hasn't been able to do with data. That's what we're trying to do. The question is, why weren't these structures set up before the bills were passed? You know, one of the problems was um, when Congress did set this up for the IG community back when the Recovery Act was passed in 2009, the IG community created a data analytics platform. But in 2015, when the Recovery Board sunset, the IG board that oversaw that sunset, there wasn't funding to continue the analytics platform. And so because the executive branch, legislative branch, the White House and Congress didn't agree to fund it. It went away. So we had to rebuild it when the pandemic hit in 2020. The only thing the government ever sunset in the past 150 years, basically, was the <laughs> analytics platform. And so you are learning what's going on. What action can be taken from what you're learning, say, of people under 12 or over 80 that might have gotten awards they weren't entitled to? So one of the other things we've done here at the at the PRAC, at the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, is create a law enforcement task force. We're bringing together agents from across the IG community, all of the agents who are willing to help. Some of my agents at the Justice Department are part of that task force. Others are contributing. And so we are following up. We're partnering with the Secret Service, the FBI, HSI, other federal law enforcement agencies, state and local counterparts. And in fact, we are getting dozens and now hundreds of convictions. Um, and in fact, yesterday we got the first conviction for someone who actually had the audacity to go to trial, despite the evidence we had found that they that that individual co-defendant pled guilty and got nine years in jail. Yesterday, the defendant was the other defendant was convicted, had applied for over ten million dollars in pandemic loans, got a million dollars and invested it in cryptocurrency, luxury apartments, and Mercedes. That person, the jury didn't take long to convict. 
um, and is now facing sentence. Yeah, not exactly like Goodfellas when they knocked off Kennedy Airport. They pinched something like $6 million from a Lufthansa flight. <laughs> the rule was don't buy anything expensive and bring the feds down on us. Right. They were and down. don't use, as in that case, false identities, false tax returns, by the way, all submitted to the SBA to get the loans. What's your sense of how much of any of this can be clawed back in terms of financial return? It's one thing to convict people, and God bless you for doing that, but can any of the money come back to the Treasury? Yeah, so when we find the money, we're going out and seizing it. We are. The the Marshall Service or the Secret Service, who's ever the seizing agency, now is the proud owner and has to sell crypto, you know, offload, luxury apartments, luxury cars, um, it, it's oftentimes not sitting in a bank account, but when it is sitting in a bank account, we'll get it back. We've recovered over a billion dollars to date for the taxpayers. That's probably a small amount of fraud that we're we're looking at. But one of the things we're committed to here at the PRAC and I'm committed to is we're going to chase every penny. And, and I mean every penny. That's what we do as inspectors general, as you know. It doesn't need to be... $10 million. It can be $5,000. And we're going to go after it. We're going to get his claw back as much as we can. You can't have a situation where crime pays, right? You just can't have that. We're speaking with Michael Horowitz, chairman of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, also inspector general at the Justice Department. And are there any particular programs of, I mean, this $5 trillion or so is several programs, payroll protection and so on, any of them particularly more rife from what you can tell analytically than others? Yeah, so the, the the three biggest programs, all about $800 billion, so combined roughly half of the $5 trillion was the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP program, Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, referred to as EIDL, and the Unemployment Insurance Programs. Those three accounted for $800 billion each, so about $2.4 trillion, $2.5 trillion total, and those have been the programs that we've found rife with corruption and wrongdoing and, and fraud. The, for PPP and EIDL, one of the biggest challenges is the huge amounts of money that went out in April and May of 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic, based solely on self-certification. Someone walked in or someone submitted online an application and simply certified that this they really own these businesses, they really employed these people, and SBA sent them the money. No questions asked. And, you know, you can't do that at bank. No, you can, you don't walk into a bank and say, no, no, trust me. I really do employ 200 people and, you know, have X millions in assets. Sure. So you then you have a problem of not so much a problem, but a challenge of some purely federally administered programs. But when it comes to unemployment, that money flowed through the state systems. And are you getting cooperation from the state agencies in this analytical effort and trying to get some of that back? Yes, we are. In fact, we've been working with the S with the Labor Department Inspector General. They have gotten data from all what are 54 agencies because of the U.S. territories and others that um, uh, administer the unemployment insurance program. And so they are looking at the data. We've just arranged to get that as well at the PRAC. Um, and so we're looking at that. And it is a major challenge. And the challenge is that we've got 54 separately administered programs. And so, for example, we've identified and the labor IGs identified one case where the same Social Security number was used to get benefits in 29 different states. 
because wow. there isn't that ability or hasn't been that ability in the past to, to change that. We're working with the administration. Gene Sperling, who leads the White House implementation team, has been engaged with us in weekly meetings over the last year and a half. And this is one of the key issues that we've been talking about. How do you fix this problem? Yes, because this tool and the expertise you're gaining, it seems to me, could be repurposed for almost every federal program, grants, direct cash payments, you name it, even contracting to some extent, once you get this analytical chops sort of up to speed. You're you're exactly right. In fact, as the new inspector general of the Justice Department in a grant program, as you said, I foresaw this problem. We had found and the Justice Department agency had found that a grantee was a high-risk grantee and should not get additional grants without close scrutiny. Well, it turned out another agency didn't know that. And in the course of our investigation, we learned that that other agency, at the same time, the Justice Department itself, not us, had put them on a high-risk list. The other agency didn't know that and gave a grant. That can't happen. Sure. And just give us a sense of how you are developing the algorithms. You must have a pretty sharp staff? Do you have contractor support to feed all of this, to gather the data, to normalize it? I mean, it's a big process on the technology front too, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's a huge challenge. Um, As everybody knows, it's a challenge oftentimes at the federal government to recruit top-tier talent in the IT space and the statistical and the statistician space and the mathematics space. And, And we were fortunate in the CARES Act, the law that the first major pandemic relief law gave us, that created the practice gave us hiring authority to directly hire individuals. And we've used that to create what we call a data science fellows project. So we are looking to recruit and have recruited about two dozen tremendous talented individuals who are recent graduates of colleges, graduate programs, who want to come and work for the federal government, who want to help in this huge national disaster relief effort. And so we have an unbelievably talented group. We've set up a web page. The public can go to our webpage, pandemicoversight.gov. Go to our land analytics platform. You can see the biographies of the fellows we've been able to hire through this program. It's an amazing group. And the great thing about it, Tom, is once these folks come on board, we're going to be able to have them get permanent jobs in the IG community and hopefully recruit them to stay because our organization, the PRAC, sunsets in 2025. For example, my office has already hired one of those data fellows at DOJ OIG. They're tremendously talented people, and we're fortunate. And one of the lessons from this, by the way, is the federal government needs to mimic this across agencies to recruit top-tier talent in the IT space. It seems like almost as if this whole project could be adopted by SIGI and somehow become a part of that so that it has that permanence and doesn't sunset like the PRAC itself. You're exactly right, Tom. In fact, that's one of the things we've been talking with bipartisan legislators to do, which is in 2025, rather than repeat what happened in 2015, when the recovery board sunset and the abilities were lost, how do we continue that? How do we keep it going? And I've also talked about this with OMB leadership and the White House team led by Gene Sperling. Everybody needs to think about 2025. It may seem like a long way away, but as all of us in the federal government know, we're already budgeting for 2024. It isn't far off. Sure. And let's get to the dashboards that you opened up a few weeks ago. This was what it sounds like, a dashboard looking into the different programs. What does that show? And I guess the big question is, what has the take-up been? Are people 
visiting the site and looking into the information. Yeah, no, great question about that. One of the things we were committed to do from the outset, as the legislation required, was on transparency, uh, making sure the public knew where its money went, and also empowering them as citizen watchdogs, allowing them to report to us, as they have been, potential fraud, other issues they're seeing. The dashboards, initially what we created, and it's still available, is people can go to use their zip codes and get down to the zip code level on where the money went. The new dashboards allow people to dig down within each agency and see how each agency has spent the money. So federal employees listening and want to know how their agency, the HHS, Department of Energy, Labor Department, wherever they're working, they want to see how their agency has spent the money. They can drill down and see that. Again, we're about trying to empower users to get down to as granular a level as our data allows us to get. That's been a little bit of a challenge is being able to use the data to get to a granular level. The federal government needs to do better at that. But that's what we're doing. It seems like this matches in some ways the ongoing dashboard for, I think it's usaspending.gov that's been up for a number of years. It has its limitations, but it's better than it was. Any correlation between the two? Any way of maybe harmonizing them so that it becomes something comprehensive? Yeah. So what we've, and usaspending.gov, as you know, is grows out of, the recovery boards, right. recovery.gov. That was the first initiative. What we've tried to do is take usaspending.gov's data, which is um, useful but not complete, take that data as well as other data we've been able to get that isn't on usaspending.gov. And that is what we've com- been able to bring together. But you're right. The hope would be that we can, our experience can help improve usaspending.gov, much like the recovery board's efforts launched usaspending.gov. That has to happen. And have you been monitoring it and seeing, is it actually being visited and looked at? Yes. So we are using analytics platforms. We are getting thousands of users uh, regularly to our website. Um, And what we have been trying to do, and I think particularly effectively doing, is on our, through our Twitter account and others, constantly sending out messages Folks who want to follow us, by the way, who are listening, go to our pandemicoversight.gov website and sign up for our Twitter account or go to Twitter and find us, Pandemic Oversight. You will get regular messages. We we just issued one on Halloween that viewers could see how many corn maze companies that ran corn mazes and haunted houses got loans, legitimate loans. Just, you know, people can look at that and see, you know, how much did the pandemic money help people? Not just how much fraud was committed, right? There's sure. both there. A Halloween without candy corn, that would truly be un-American, I guess. That would truly be un-American. As someone who loves candy corn, I agree with you, although I will tell you it's a controversial subject in my office, whether you like it or don't like it. <laughs> well, you just put the bowl out and see what people take up. And so what are your plans now for 2023 calendar as we as the year approaches? Because we're all on a CR coming the fiscal right now. So that's that's a ways off. So we have a few things going on in, in a significant way. One is obviously the investigations will continue. President Biden signed an extension of statute of limitations by bipartisan bill passed by Congress from five to 10 years. So that work will continue. It's substantial and it continues sadly to grow. We're continuing our other oversight work. So for example, we've been doing field work to try and understand at a granular level in communities across the country, how did this money, 
help them and what were the impediments to their ability to use the money. And so we're finishing up that work. You can look for a report next year on that effort. We're continuing to get data. We're working right now, for example, to uh, be able to match certain information we have with certain social security data from a law enforcement standpoint, because we think we found indicators of fraud there. We're going to continue that effort as well. And then we've put out already, as folks who visit our website will see, two reports on lessons learned, identifying challenges and problems that the federal government needs to think about going forward. We're going to continue that effort and put out further reports as we identify and learn from our work, because there's a lot here that we've learned, as you might imagine, with $5 trillion of oversight. And as everybody who's ever done this knows, there will be future emergencies. Hopefully no pandemics. Let's wait another 100 years um, or more. But there's earthquakes, there's hurricanes, there's fires, there's natural disasters. Congress supports those efforts. And the public wants to make sure that all the tools that can be used are used to prevent fraud. Final question, getting back to the dashboard, has it resulted in any whistleblower types of alerts or any kind of tips? Hey, I saw where this was in my zip code and, you know, Joe over there ended up with a new Rolls Royce or something like that. Absolutely. In fact, that's why we keep putting this data out to to have the public let us know about this. And what else we're doing is we're doing monthly and quarterly meetings with our state and local counterparts and we're passing along to them fraud alerts. So that not only are we doing work in this space, but, you know, they're on the ground, our state and local counterparts, state auditors, local auditors, state and local law enforcement. They're the ones who are the first line defenders in many respects. So we're doing that as well. That's been a very important part of what we've been doing. Michael Horowitz is chairman of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee and inspector general at the Justice Department. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Great again to be here. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the dashboards at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. 
and his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of 
coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But 
I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield. And this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.